Acts chapter 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If, then, I am a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face, and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, 
and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. We've got two big things going on in our world this week. Um, the first one you just saw there, uh, the reality that um, they're, they're now saying 25,000 people lost their lives in the devastation there. And while we probably aren't hopping on an airplane and going, um, I'm thankful to be in partnership with an organization that was there within hours, um, sharing the love of Christ, caring for the needs of people. And so the Send Relief Network is um, part of our tribe, and uh, we support them. They are disaster relief and a care organization uh, that is just unbelievable. Um, a lot of times things like this come up, and you're like, I want to help. I want to be involved somehow. And there's all kinds of organizations out there. Um, it is our encouragement to you that when you give and you partner, try to partner with an organization that is going to do all the work that like the Red Cross and these other organizations will be doing, yet while they're there, they're also lifting up the name of Jesus. Um, this earthquake, like we've been in Acts. If, if you're part of Genesis, you know we've been studying Acts for a long time. Over and over and over again, I've told you that this is happening in Syria and Turkey. Um, this earthquake took place in the places that Paul walked, hung out. But in 2023, it is a place where Christianity is almost non-existent anymore. And, and so, uh, just this morning, next few weeks, we're, we're just, hey, you can give to this. There's a couple of ways you can partner with Send Relief. Um, one, you can just go to their website. They have easy links to give. Um, it's all charitable giving through them. Uh, or you could give through Genesis um, write a check, put it in the offering, and just put send relief on your check. Uh, or you give through our online giving. Go to genesisurica.com. It's very easy to find online and just choose special offering. Everything that's given online to the special offering will go to this for the rest of this month. And so we could be a part of making a difference around the world even this morning as we consider praying and giving and being generous and, and partnering with an organization that is boots on the ground, feeding people, caring for people, um, doing all kinds of work to care for needs while at the same time sharing Jesus with them. Uh, the second big thing that's going on is there might be a football game tonight. Anybody aware of that? Uh, just if you didn't know. Um, it, you know, so, so yesterday I was preparing my ribs because we were having ribs tonight um, with, with the, are you ready for this? The Kansas City rub. Lest you wonder where my allegiance lies. Um, my kids are rooting for the Eagles, may not get them. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm teetering back and forth on this. In fact, I heard this morning, uh, it is not Christmas. We have red and green up here, uh, and it is not Christmas. It's because one of my daughters, I have twin daughters, and they help with stage design, and one of them said we ought to put red up here to show that we are for uh, the Chiefs, and the, the other one said, I'm not for the Chiefs, I'm for the Eagles, we ought to put green. So we have green and red up here representing the two teams. Um, and so, yeah, that's going on tonight, if you didn't know, and, you know, the whole commercial thing. But I did want to make you aware of one thing that's going to happen. Because sometimes we are looking for a way to share faith with people. Like, I wish somebody would tee it up for me so I just could turn and go, what do you think? And believe it or not, tonight, if you are with people who don't know Jesus, you will have that opportunity. Uh, there's an organization that is called He Gets Us. You may have seen some of their ads and there is some discussion about the way they frame certain things in the culture. Are they really depicting Jesus well or not? But here's, I'm not going to get into that debate, okay? So if you're kind of like, I don't like some of the things they've said, or I really like their ads or whatever, I don't care. Here's the point I'm making. 
The organization that is behind this has fronted several, like, millions of dollars to run two one-minute ads tonight during a football game. Where they're going to look at, the, like, the whole audience that is watching the Super Bowl, nationally and internationally, and say, let me tell you a little bit about who Jesus is. And my point for you is be ready tonight, okay? Be ready when that ad shows up because it is a teed up, queued up moment just to look at the people in the room and go, what do y'all think about that? Okay, it's really easy. It, it, it is queued up for you. Now, the organization is, is, is keeping things somewhat vague in some ways, but they're trying to raise interest and awareness over the name of Jesus and hopefully pushing them to, to resources and churches who will make much of Jesus and point them to scripture and the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And so one of the ads tonight, that, or two of the ads tonight, one of the organizations that is gonna uh, do that is gonna make much of the name of Jesus. Jump in on that, be ready. I wanted you to not be off cue, but when it happens, you're like, oh, I'm ready for this. And you can just turn, like I said, just turn to your friends and say, hey, what do you think about this? And that is a good thing. All right, so that's the two big events and kind of how to interact with it. Um, I was sitting, or not sitting, I was on my elliptical, uh, uh, the elliptical at the Timbers this week. I'm working out, doing the elliptical, uh, trying to get in shape, do all that kind of stuff. And if you've ever worked out in any gym, so the Timbers is like this, you have these TVs all over the wall, right? And this was the day after the State of the Union address, you know? Uh, the president every year stands up, makes a speech, says this is how the how thing is. And if you watch it, it's kind of crazy because you end up with some people who cheer Every time the guy like twitches an eye, like, right? The other side is like, no, we're not going to cheer. And everyone's water, you know, golf clapping. And then some people kind of shouting out. And, you know, it's just a whole weird moment. But then I'm working out. Neither TV has sound on. I'm actually reading a book while I'm doing this. Not even paying attention, but it's there. Like these two TVs are there. And one TV had one cable news network on. And another TV had another cable news network on. I couldn't hear what they were saying but the little snippets and the bullet points that they would put on the screen and the, the look of the people's faces, because they were talking about this speech the next day. One side, you would have sworn that the guy was a beast, a horrible human being who had made the, a, 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 you know, a speech from the pit of hell. And the other like TV that's going on right next to it, I'm just trying to work out, is like, the guy's smiling, feeling good. This guy must be like almost messianic, bringing to us a message of hope. And it was just kind of crazy. Like I'm on this workout machine trying to read my book and go about my business. And there it was, right? Uh, it is interesting engaging in government issues in our world. Even here in America, it has become really interesting. In our story this week, the reason I'm bringing that moment up that it caught me so strikingly is our story this week we end up with this guy named Paul, who we've been talking about for a long time, who has now been under arrest for two and a half years, even though, at the moment we're reading this morning, he has been in chains and under arrest for two and a half years, even though the rulers for the Roman government have already found him not guilty and have declared it multiple times. And it actually gets declared multiple times in this text. Now, I don't care where you go. I don't care. We, we go to I, I mean, any country in the world. If they are arresting people and putting them in jail, and, and the government has already said they're not guilty of anything deserving this, yet for political expediency they get left in jail, that is a problem. That is injustice, right? And, and, and that is something that, that 
happens over and over again. This is what has happened in, Paul, in, in Paul's story. And so uh, as we're in this part of Acts, this whole crazy story, um, the, like the, Acts has told us the story of the birth of Christianity from 120 people to Rome to the explosion of Christianity in the Roman Empire all over Turkey and Syria, what we just talked about, and Greece. And it's reached Rome, and the gospel is spreading. But Paul has moved from missionary trips to getting arrested in Jerusalem by the Romans to protect him from the Jews. And now he's been just under this arrest in this city called Caesarea of uh, Maritimes, so this, this city that is a Roman city on the coast in Israel where this Roman palace sits. And he is in this story. He ends up in the presence of the two most powerful Roman rulers representing the Roman government in the Middle East of his moment. The first is a guy named Portius Festus, okay? Now, he replaced the guy we talked about last week. So if you're here last week, we told you the whole story of Felix um, and, and uh, made a couple cat jokes in there, right? But uh, Felix was awful. He was a ruthless ruler, not just towards Christians, but, but towards the Jewish people that he was overseeing. Because what he did is he actually, um, first of all, he, he put a hit out on the Jewish high priest. Roman governor uh, actually uh, assassinated, led the assassination of the murder of the highest religious official in Israel, okay? Um, and so uh, th- this took place, but beyond that, he just, anytime there was any uprising, his response was to squash it with authority and power, which led to more and more discontent and anger and more and more uprisings. And so he just had blood on his hands everywhere, uh, and it became so frustrating that Nero, who is not known to be a great world leader, he's kind of nuts himself, thought this guy was too violent and got him out of power. And so what's happened, he had left Paul in prison for two years because Paul wouldn't bribe him. He said, Paul's not guilty, but he left Paul in prison for two years and, and then uh, just for, for politics because he doesn't want to get the Jews upset about something else, the Jewish leaders upset about something else. He leaves Paul in prison. Well, we pick up our story this week and there's a new sheriff in town. It's this guy Festus, okay? Uh, and, and Festus um, shows up and when he shows up, what we have in the story is that he immediately starts playing the political game. And Paul continues to be a pawn in the political game. But he is in front of this guy Festus. Uh, what we know of Festus is basically from the book of Acts here, and, and also uh, a Roman historian named Jose- or a Jewish historian who wrote for Rome named Josephus. But what we know about him from both these texts is that he was, he was pretty good at the political sphere, but he was a completely different type of leader for Rome. He kind of smoothed edges and actually used diplomacy to, to, to reshape some of the, the rebellion that was going on in this part of the world at this point in time. He was a decent leader. He wasn't there for very long. This event happens probably 60 AD. Uh, in 62 AD, he died of an illness just suddenly. And he, so he's not there very long, about three and a half years. He, he serves as the governor for Rome. The other people, people we're going to meet are this, this Agrippa and Bernice. A little later in the story, Agrippa is the great-grandson of a guy named Herod the Great, which is the, if you're familiar with the biblical story, he's the guy who killed the babies in Bethlehem in the Christmas story, okay? Um, but he, he is, uh, his dad was a guy named Herod Agrippa I. So this is Herod Agrippa II. Herod Agrippa I was uh, the, the uh, king who actually dies in the book of Acts, um, I think it's in Acts uh, 14 or 15, but anyway, he dies in the book of Acts 
Um, and, and what we see is that this guy was a Roman ruler. Uh, these, the, the Herods, the Agrippas, they are Middle Eastern guys. They're not from Rome. They're from the Middle East. They are kings, but they are kings because Rome made them a king. And so their authority comes from Rome, but they represent the Roman government. They're, they're government folk. And now his son, Agrippa, had taken his throne and had broadened his scope, but this Bernice is not his wife. It's his sister. And so they have this weird relationship that there are ancient story rumors, right, about these guys. That brother and sister, they're together all the time. They kind of co-rule. And they show up in the story. But here's the point that Paul ends up in this moment where he is uh, with the most powerful rulers and the other leaders from the city of Caesarea. And here's Paul in the middle of it. He is standing before the government. And for today, what that helps us, I I think what we can wrestle with this morning is go, how does Paul interact with the government authorities? What is his interaction with these people? And how can that shape our witness? Because our kind of theme in this section of Acts has been to say, okay, Paul went from a world that, that while there was hostility around, he had some freedom to proclaim Christ. And now he is in the throw of a moment where everything is turned hostile against him. The, the people in Israel, the Jewish religious leaders and the Jewish people in Israel had turned against him. They wanted him dead. They wanted to, to lynch him. The um, Roman officials aren't sure what to do with him, but they don't do what's right. When they keep saying he didn't do anything, they don't let him go. And so they leave him in prison, and he's under this situation where he could, like, lose his life. Meanwhile, he saw a vision from Jesus saying, I'm going to get you to Rome. And so he knows that's part of God's sovereign plan. He's a, a Roman citizen. Paul's a Jewish guy, guy who's a Roman citizen. So on one level, as a Roman citizen, he exercises his rights as a Roman citizen, and doesn't allow an illegal trial. But on the other, other hand, he, he, he is um, always treating these people with respect and kindness and, and humility. And, and what does this say to us about how we engage our government, how we're involved in politics, how, how we see this world where two TVs are blaring what do we as kingdom people do? And this is where this, this old time dude from a long, long time ago gives us a lot of help. This guy named Augustine. Augustine was uh, probably the greatest theologian between Paul and this afternoon. Uh, he is one of the most influential writers. He was a philosopher, a theologian, a uh, pastor. He did not grow up Christian. His mom was. Mom prayed for him for years. He finally came to Jesus, and he wrote some of the most important works. And one of the works he wrote is a book called The City of God. It's a huge work that was hap- he wrote during the time that Rome was about to fall. It, it's the massive turmoil. But he could look back over the history of Rome and the ch- church's involvement in it and see some major problems both ways, where Rome was awful, and then Rome became more Christian, and how did that affect? And he, he writes this book that says, listen, uh, there are two cities. You have the, the earthly city and the heavenly city, and, and what we as Christians are is we are actually citizens of both cities, but these two cities are shaped by different loves. The, the values and attitudes are shaped by different loves, and so the earthly city is always going to be shaped by love of self, 
by putting our, yourself in the middle, by, by ruling and, and, and feeling like we're the most important thing and ruling from that perspective. Meanwhile, the heavenly city has a different king. His name is Jesus. And the allegiance is not about self. It is about making Jesus known and living our lives for his fame. And so here's what we are. We are people in this world who have a foot and we are literally citizens. We have dual citizenship. We have a citizenship in our moment and our earthly city and our kingdom. And for us, that is in the United States of America and all that sort of stuff. And so we are citizens here, yet at the same time, when you trust and follow Jesus, when you see the beauty of Christ, when you understand that Christ died for your sins, but he rose again and is victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and you come to Christ, what you are doing is you are pledging allegiance to Jesus. You are bowing your knee to Christ as king, and you have embraced a different kingdom. Right? All right, let me say it again, right? That's an amen moment, right? If we're here today and we have trusted Jesus, we have all come to the point where we've said, Christ is my true king. Jesus is Lord, okay? And that understanding shapes everything about how we relate to the government. We're at this moment, folks, where there's this weird struggle because the young people in our nation are leaving the faith. They are ditching Christianity. They're running away from the church. They are hyper-spiritual, but they are no longer looking to the church for hope and for answers. And one of the most central reasons, right or wrong, you can disagree and say, this isn't, it's just not accurate, that's fine. I'm just telling you, one of the central reasons that young people are leaving the faith is because of the tie between what has been Christianity, our country, and certain forms of government here. And maybe we ought to wrestle with what, Paul, what happens in this text, what the scripture teaches, and figure out how we are to have a good public witness. Is our engagement in the government helping or harming our witness of Christ? And so Augustine, the city of God, says this. I want you to listen to this, because he... His, his, he's not saying Christians run away from government, don't have anything to do with it. He actually is calling for us to be good citizens and sometimes even be in the government, but never forget what the government really is. Listen to what he says. Every earthly state makes use of some of the citizens of the city of God to administer its affairs. How many of the faithful are there among its loyal subjects and its magistrates, its judges, generals, governors, and even among those who have been kings. And here's what he's saying. He said, listen, almost every human state who hasn't just turned completely against Christianity has believers in Jesus who serve in governmental positions, who lead as generals and governors. All these are good people keeping deep in their hearts the longing for the glorious things of heaven. In a way, they are like foreigners in a society that will pass away but in the meantime, under the command of God, they serve their earthly masters consciously. It's a great, great quote. He's saying, listen, it's not to run away from it, but it's always to remember who your true allegiance is and to trust in Christ and live with that. And so what happens in our story is that here's Paul who represents this in the story. We see it really clearly when we get to the end of the story. It's a beautiful moment. You gotta, like, you gotta, like, see it with your eyes. See it with your imagination. But it starts with, here's, there's a new sheriff in town. Here comes Festus. He gets in town. And the first thing he does as a good political guy is he leaves Caesarea. He, he, he sailed from Rome, comes to Caesarea on the coast, hangs out for a day or two, but then he gets to the center 
of the political, like, he's going to rule over these Jewish people. He gets to Jerusalem. And he's going to spend a little over a week in Jerusalem trying to politic. He's going to try to make nice. He's going to try to, to smooth some things and develop a relationship with the people. He's not just going to come in and be like the guy before him who was just a jerk. And so he does the political, and he forms good relations. But what happens is in the middle of it, what comes up in this conversation, very early in the conversation as Luke lays it out, is, hey, there's this Paul guy. You've got him in prison up there in Caesarea. We want him brought back here. We want a trial back here in Jerusalem. And Luke reminds us that the reason that they want him brought back is not so that Paul will have a fair trial. Luke wants Paul brought back so they can jump the caravan again. They still have these people who are vowed to take Paul's life. They want to off him. And so bring him here, but there is, a, a, there is still a plot and plan to, to, to end Paul's life. And Festus honors Roman law. He's like, whoa, 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 that's not the way we roll, man. Uh, what, what happens is that when we have somebody who's, who's being accused of something like this, we make sure that they are tried in the right place, in the right way, by the right people. I don't know if he caught wind of the danger, but, but he does what is right and says, we can have another trial in Caesarea. I'm not bringing them here. And so he, he then spends his time, gets back to uh, Caesarea on the coast, the, the Roman city in the Middle East, uh, where there's a fortress, like they're not going to storm the gates to get Paul, it's just not going to be possible. And there, just a few days later, here come the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders again, and they make their accusations. But what we're told in the story is that uh, in, in the moment, uh, their accusations are kind of all over the map, and, and at the end of the day, they can't be proven. They don't, like this has been echoed, Paul's innocence of anything against the Jews and against God's law and against the Romans is just highlighted over and over again. And, and so they don't have any proof, any evidence. They just come making claims. Paul makes his defense that again says, I'm not guilty of violating the temple. I'm not guilty of violating the law of God. I'm not guilty of violating any Roman law. And so what happens is at the end of the story, or in this section, uh, Festus just goes, but I want to make nice with these people. I want to get them where they're on my side. How about if you and me go finish the trial back in Jerusalem? And he says, I don't, I don't really see any problem. You haven't really done anything here. So we'll get there and I'll judge and I'll, I'll make them happy by, by doing what they wanted. You're not going to be in trouble. And Paul, knowing that that's not going to end well, does what he has the right to do as a Roman citizen. He appeals to Caesar. He appeals to Caesar. Uh, it, it, this is actually a Roman, pro, uh, Roman declaration called provocatio. Provocatio. Which was, an, it, it went back as many as 500 years back where a person who was a Roman citizen, who had the citizenship in Rome, had the right to look at the Roman government and say, you can't try me, you can't beat me, you can't keep me in jail, and you definitely can't end my life without a fair trial. And if I believe that trial, I can appeal that trial all the way to the highest court, Caesar's court in Rome. And so Paul, as a Roman citizen, says, I'm not guilty of anything, yet you won't let me free, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to appeal over your head. I want to go to Caesar's court. 
and I want to go there. Now he's going to go to Nero. Here's the interesting thing. Nero at this point in time was actually a pretty good ruler. It's the second half of his rule where he lost his mind if you studied him. Right now he's got a decent reputation. Uh, he is actually being advised by the, the Roman um, philosopher Seneca. Have you ever heard that word, that name? And, and one of the interesting things about this whole story is it's, the beauty of it is Luke is writing true history in a real world. And he's really accurate with this, his writing. Really accurate. But Paul appeals to Caesar uh, using his right. Well, then this guy, Festus now, doesn't know what to do with Paul, but he goes and talks to his advisors, and they say, send them. So what he asked for, send them. It gets this problem out of your hair. Uh, you can look at the Jews and go, he appealed. He's got the right to do this. We had to do what we were legally bound to do. It gets him out of, like, you don't have to make any decisions, so it doesn't go right or left for you. It's all good. And so he sends him. But in the meantime, Paul stays in prison again. And after some time, this guy Agrippa and Bernice show up. And when Agrippa and Bernice show up, uh, one of the things that Festus says to him is, I got this Paul problem. I don't know what to do because if I just let him go, uh, I'm going to end up with a problem of political. Like, they're going to turn on me. But if I keep him, it's not going to go well. Like, that's really not fair, not just. He appealed to, to, to Rome. But Agrippa, who is curious like his dad was, like his grandpa was, like his great-grandpa was, as a ruler says, I really want to meet this Paul. I want, I want to hear him. And so what we're told is that, that they, they come and there's a, the, the next day they fill this hall and we're told there's great pomp. This moment where the picture is of all these people. So you have this bema seat, this, this huge throne that Roman rulers would sit on up on a platform. You have them in all their royal regalia, a lot of purple, a lot of gold, a lot of crowns, a lot of jewelry, a lot of look how important I am, look how I rule the world, look how I am, am, am the center of it, everything. And then all these important people, these Roman and Jewish people who have prominence get tickets to the event. And then when they're all ready, so picture the scene, see it. Everything that the government has to say about itself, everything that the, the government is trying to picture, walk into this event, and now Festus gives charge and says, bring Paul in. And in walks this aging, balding, fairly crippled from all the beatings, frail, weak man in prison clothes. And folks, what we're supposed to do is at this moment we're supposed to ask this question, who's the most powerful person in the room? Who really matters here? Because if I wasn't telling this story, you wouldn't know Festus except the fact that the guy on Gunsmoke was named after him and we got a town, right? And Agrippa would long be gone in our memories. But the witness of the Apostle Paul will go on. Why? We need to hear this and see what's happening here. And here's what happens when you read the Bible. The Bible starts looking at government. Doesn't matter what government it is. It actually looks at government and it gives us these two images of government. And they seem contradictory, okay? They seem contradictory. 
In, in, in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, Paul, this same guy we're talking about, writes. And he's writing about the, the Christian's relationship to the government, to the rulers and authorities. And look at what he says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the, what God has appointed, and those who, uh, who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but, but, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And so here's the first thing. Paul is looking at uh, writing here. He's saying, listen, let's, let's, let's help you understand who the government is. Now, this government he's talking about is Nero's government, the Roman government. Who are they? They are God's servant. And the posture of our faith, the posture of a believer in Jesus is to understand that God is sovereign over kingdoms, that God has ordained governments. He has placed them in place and whoever is in power is from God. They are God's servant. And our primary relationship is to be subject to them, to give honor, to pay our taxes, to, to be obedient. Like we are being obedient to our king in heaven when we are living as good citizens on earth. Right? And that the government is a servant. And if that was all it is, then, then what we would say is, okay, then our goal is just to be passive, unengaged in the government people who just obey anything that happens. But that's not the only picture. The second picture comes from the book of Revelation. We're doing a Bible study in Revelation with a group of men on Tuesday morning. We literally read this text last week from Revelation chapter 14, 13 verses 4 through 7. Says that, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So, so the second image here is of a beast who has the authority of a dragon. Image number one, servant of God, God is sovereign, he has put governance in place. But here's what's going on in this text. Now, some who will read this will say, this is a reference to the end times, and at the end time there will be this Antichrist who rules this government, blah, blah, blah. And, and that may be true. And if that's how you've read it in the past, I'm not negating that. Yet, when John writes this text, the sitting power was the Roman government over the people. And there is a way in which John is trying to look at the people in their context 2,000 years ago and say, listen, this beastly type of demeanor. And this beast, like if you go back a few verses, it is just a crazy, like there's an image of a leopard and a bear and a lion and it's got all these heads. It's, it's awful. And John is, is saying maybe there is an ultimate far fulfillment in this in a single government, yet he is making the point that is echoed all throughout scripture 
that every human government at the core is the city of man, which means it is a beast ruled by a dragon. We went to the zoo and there was this leopard that was, my kids saw it, it was like literally here's the fence and there's the leopard. It was just walking right there in front of them. And it was, it, you know, they're beautiful. But you don't ever want to forget that if somehow that leopard could get through that fence, like you don't want to lose your terror of that, understanding what that leopard really represents. And in fact, if you've read the newspaper for the last several weeks, you find out that one of those animals actually got out of its pen at the Dallas Zoo, and they did what is right, get everybody the heck out of the zoo. Because without that fence, that leopard is a leopard. It will eat you, right? It's a beast. And, and watch this. This is what the Bible's trying to help us see, that on one level, we should look at any government, including our government here, and say, it is a servant of God. God has ordained governments. We should live in submission, live as good citizens. Yet, it is also a, dra- a beast that is under the control of a dragon. The dragon, the text makes very clear, is Satan. So who controls the government? Is it God or Satan? The answer biblically is yes. And that's a deep end of the pool issue. But here's the problem that we end up with. When our guy wins, we think it's just a a servant of God who is doing what is right. And when the other side wins, they're the beast. We end up with these two pictures and Christians are to go, listen, my allegiance is to King Jesus. That's it. And I can never forget that on one level, I'm called to be a good citizen, to love the, love the city, to care for the city well, to represent Christ's kingdom here. So therefore, we should try to shape government. We should try to move in the lives of people. We should try to be engaged. We don't run away and get uninvolved. Yet on the other end, we always need to remember that every human government, including ours, is part of the kingdom of this world. And it is not our true kingdom. And our role is to represent King Jesus in that moment. That's what it looks like. And and, and what's happened, like in our culture, kind of hinted at it, is just the tendency is to see my side as the servant and the other side as the beast. And what we end up with is getting too close to a beast or we get too far away from a servant. And, And so... This story is just a beautiful moment. Paul is representing Christ. He is in prison clothes and shackles. Yet he he is going to stand before the most powerful people in the Middle East in the midst of a governmental moment, but a whole governmental story as the government that rules the bulk of planet Earth at this point in time, at least that whole, I mean, everything from India to England. But he's going to stand before their rulers and be a representative of a better kingdom. That's what's happening. And that's our call. So let me just real quick, I, I want to give you five words, just five words that should characterize our public engagement of the governmental world around us. That, that are, are seeing two kingdoms that understand that the government of this world is a servant and a beast, that we don't lose sight. If we're getting this, We get this from the text, but also from some of Paul's writings. Five words that should represent our Christian witness in the public sphere, very specifically as we relate to government. And there's a country where we get to vote. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I'm not going to talk about vote. But our engagement in America looks a little bit different because of the way our government is structured. But I don't think that the the principles change. So here's, here's just five words. The first word is prayerful. Prayerful. That 
The text doesn't spell this out, but Paul later writes very clearly what has been his posture towards this whole situation. He is praying for these leaders. He is praying for these, the, he's praying for Festus. He's praying for Felix. He's praying for Agrippa. He's praying for the Roman government. He's praying for the Sanhedrin and these Jewish leaders who have put him in this situation. He is prayerful. How do I know that he's prayerful? Because he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 this. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that he may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, we pray for our kings and rulers, but our prayer is that, that, that they would allow us to live the life of faith before our friends and neighbors. But when they don't, when they turn into more of a beast, we don't stop praying for them. There is, a, listen, there is a mandate for us to pray for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. There is a mandate when Donald Trump was in office to pray for Donald Trump and Mike Pence. And it's not like what we, what we do is we go, all right, I got a prayer for you. It's in the Psalms. Lord, smash their teeth, Right? Our posture is, first of all, the posture of running to our true king and go, you are sovereign over nations. I may not like some of the politics of the moment, but before I complain, before I post on Twitter, before I whine on Facebook, I'm going to lift these leaders up in prayer to you. It is hard to hate people you are diligently praying for. But here is the scriptures telling us that we are to intentionally pray for governmental leaders, and it's Paul who writes that letter to Timothy when Nero is turning on him. In fact, what's happening in the Roman Empire when Paul writes 1 Timothy is the beastly side is really showing up. Yet he says pray. Pray for your ruler. Second thing is to be positive, to have a positive witness or to be good citizens to have a positive witness, to be good citizens. The whole of scriptures keeps calling the church to live as representatives of the king in his kingdom, in this, in, in, in wherever they live, and live for the good of the city, city to keep the, the laws, to live in obedience as good citizens to the culture. So we're to be positive influence in our culture. In fact, there's this crazy, beautiful story, moment in the Old Testament where um, these people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, were ripped from their homeland and became exiles in Babylon. And they had some false prophets who said, this isn't going to last long, and we ought to stand and oppose Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah writes them a letter on how they're supposed to live as exiles. They don't serve the Babylonian gods. The Babylonian government has ripped them from their homeland, has caused them to live as, as indentured servants. They, they have a community that is their own, but they are now nowhere near home. It feels like their God has lost. They, they don't know what to do with their faith. And here Jeremiah writes, and what I, I want you to listen to what Jeremiah says to these people who are in exile. He says, this letter was sent by the hand of El, uh, Elasa and the son of uh, Shaphan and all, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit reading all the names, but it's sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, and it said, here's what it says, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have, I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them. 
Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, verse 6 is saying, keep living the life of faith in that city. But, verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is the posture of exiles. And the New Testament keeps looking at us as a believer. That's who we are. We're citizens of a different king, kingdom. We're exiled here. What's our posture? We take wives. We, we have kids. We live for Jesus. We don't let the culture around us dictate our worship and our understanding of certain values and attitudes. We love our families. We, we, we grow gardens and we eat, eat meals, and we share the beauty of community. But we're to pray for and seek the welfare of the city. Our posture is not, even in exile, one of this to our culture. It's one of this. And and, and so we see this in the text when Paul's accused. His simple defense, verse 8, look at it. His simple defense is this. I didn't break the laws of Israel. I didn't break the laws of the temple. I haven't broken any Roman laws. Listen to what he's saying. I have lived as a good citizen, a positive influence citizen, serving Christ, but in all these different domains. Their charges are false. They can't prove that I ever did anything other than this. That, that's a good place. Positive witness by being good citizens, by by loving our city. The third word I want to tell you is that we need to have a prophetic witness, a prophetic presence. Being a good citizen does not mean that we go silent. But we let the gospel and the scripture shape what we are saying. There's a big difference between submission to the authorities and being silent before them. And the Christian witness always involves our having a prophetic voice demanding justice and righteousness. In fact, this happens in the text, verses 9 through 11, when he appeals to Caesar, he is literally looking at Festus and saying, you know what you're doing is not right, I'm going over your head, because you, you have declared, like, multiple times in the text, I haven't done anything. What is justice here for Paul? Like, if we're just saying, what is justice? Justice, the gov- Roman government would say, he should have been set free two and a half years ago. But both Felix and Festus have said, if I set him free, I'm going to get trouble from the the crowd I'm supposed to rule. It's not a wise political decision. But this is the way governments roll. And and the prophetic witness of the church needs to always be sharing the gospel, but preaching justice and righteousness. In fact, you you know the passage from Amos chapter 5. Martin Luther King Jr. used to quote it often, where he says, here's the prophetic witness. This is what we ought to be saying. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos is speaking prophetically to the powers of his time. And he's saying, this is what it looks like for you to be true and faithful to what God has raised you up to do. You need to let justice and righteousness flow like water. And when justice and when injustice, when unrighteousness is happening in our culture, we do need to speak with clarity to our culture with a prophetic witness. We don't give up on that. And if that prophetic witness puts us sideways with political parties, that's fine. We are true to Christ. Now here's what kills that prophetic witness. What kills that prophetic witness is when we go silent, 
We're afraid to speak because it, it might turn us sideways. The culture might not like us. But when we stand for what is right because our true king is Jesus, if we lose all power in doing what is right, we are still the most powerful person in the room. And so we lose that when we go silent or we pick sides. If you're around people who can go full-blown prophet mode on one side of the political aisle, but they can never speak to the other side, that might be a sign that what you really have is somebody whose allegiance is not to the true kingdom, but to a different kingdom. I'm just saying. This is true on Twitter. It's true in, in person. If they are, you know, man, they can quote Bible verses against this, but boy, you ever bring up anything that might be a hitch in their political side and they, they get mad at you, they disown you, they don't have anything to, there might be an idolatry issue. This happened in Israel. This Jeremiah guy who was a prophet of God, one of the big problems is that the kings of Israel had gathered prophets who would speak with unbelievable clarity about Babylon, but they were terrified to look at the king and say, but you need to repent. And they loved those prophets. The rulers loved those prophets. But here comes Jeremiah, who's speaking the true word of the Lord because he's willing to look at those in power, no matter what they are, and say, justice and righteousness, fellas. Justice and righteousness. And here's areas where you don't do that. And the Lord's going to bring judgment on us because of that. This, the prophetic witness is a big part of the church's posture towards a culture. We can't lose that. Now, that doesn't mean all y'all need to go all prophet. But what we do need is this to support a balanced prophetic witness from the scriptures and never forget okay never forget servant and a beast and it's not one political party or other it's the whole system is always the kingdom of this world right all right fourth word prioritizing and just simply uh just telling you that that what this means what i'm trying to say to you is we have to make sure we prioritize which kingdom we're a part of we need unbelievable clarity that our king is Jesus, no other kingdom will do. We're holding on to Jesus. And so see this moment again. Picture it in your head. Picture the pomp and circumstance, the gold and jewelry, the decadence, the morality, the injustice of, of this government and then they summon this weak man. He stands here not as our representative on the level of Christ is our only true representative. He gave his life for us. He is our representative in terms of our redemption. Paul would echo this. But, but what Luke's doing, he's showing us what it looks like. We may lose all power to stand honestly with Christ. And when we have lost all political power, we still enter the room the most powerful person in the room. If we're walking in the spirit and being faithful to the gospel and being true to Christ. And so, so we need to be, make sure that, that we have put Christ central in our understanding of who we are, of who the world is. And, and we, our, our posture towards the world around us is that of making Christ known first. And the last word I'll tell you is proclaiming. We need to be making sure that our central message is Jesus and nothing else. Doesn't mean we don't stand for justice and righteousness. It doesn't mean that we don't engage the political world. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't have people running for office. We should. 
Yet, at the end of the day, our goal is to proclaim Christ, to make him known, to make sure Jesus is made much of. And here is Paul, and Paul gets in a room, and he's just uber clear. Listen, I'm here because of Jesus. I'm going to make Jesus known. Next week, you're going to get to hear his message. And guess what? He does not give an eight-point talk about how the Roman government ought to shift the way they see the world. He has the most important political people in the room. And if you've been around Christianity and the gospel long enough, you don't have to read it to know what's about to come. What's Paul going to do? He's going to preach Jesus to him. He's going to preach Christ crucified and risen. It's an amazing moment. Got to come back next week to get to that. But this is what happens, right? And so this is the beauty of the story. But Paul pictures this for us. He helps us see this this moment. And, and here we are in this world, and we're not in first century Rome. We're in 21st century United States of America. Listen, there are all kinds of opinions how this shapes out. And we can have good disagreement and share cups of coffee and see certain vi- values and issues and things differently. That's a good thing in the body of Christ. Yet, we need to never forget that we have one king, and at the end of the day, we have one message. Right? I'm going to say that again. Another amen moment. Come on, folks. We have one king. We have one message. And that's it. That's what we live for. And we engage our... Listen, we have... Christianity America has suffered some because of the way at least it is perceived of political engagement. This whole text, we've been saying, how do we engage a culture? How do we have this courageous conviction? That's been our point. And so as the band comes up here, We need to realize that what is central is a better king and a better story. And so, at the end, look at what Paul says. My last thought this morning is is we're going to sing to our king and worship him in verses 18 and 19. Look at this. Look down at your, your, your text. This is Festus trying to say this is what he's being charged with. He says, listen, when when they came and made the accusations, the Jews against Paul... I was like, it's, it's no big deal. What, what are you upset about? And this is what he says as he's speaking. Festus is speaking to Agrippa. He says, when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. In other words, he's not guilty. There's nothing here. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Is what, what Festus has. I don't think he did anything wrong, but this I know. There's this guy named Jesus. The Jews tell us that he's dead. They killed him. But Paul won't shut up telling everybody he's alive. And at the end of the day, that's the problem. Church of Jesus Christ... Are we known for that? Are we known because we're just the people who say, man, everybody else thinks Jesus is dead. We're here to tell you he's alive. That's the hope for our world. And that's, that's how we should engage our culture. Lord, we love you. Just pray that you will help us see this for those who are here today. And um, maybe they don't know you. Um, I just pray that what they would hear out of this is a hope for a better king For those of us who have faith in Jesus today, help us understand that our witness to the world does involve our political engagement, 
but we should always engage the, 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 the governments around us with this allegiance to you, Jesus, as our true king and a single message that you are risen and rule over everything. So help that be central in all that we do and say and are. We praise you this morning for being that king. And we will lift our voices now to sing to you because we know that's who you are. And we are confessing this out loud. In your name I pray, amen.